All right, if you would, turn to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. Uh, just to catch us up from where we were from the first part of Titus, I just want to remind you, we can't lose uh, the freight of what Titus's greeting was to us, or Paul's greeting to Titus to us, right? So um, remember what he said, he is a servant of God, which is important. It's the only place where he says that. And... Um, and so he's making it very clear that he, in childlike humility, is, is doing what God has called him to do and submitting himself fully to what it is the Lord would have him to do. Now, does that have any implications for the rest of us? Though we're not necessarily called to do what Paul did? It certainly does, doesn't it? Remember from Matthew 18, when they were worried about who was the greatest, which, which we have argued I have argued, hopefully you have wrestled with, we all struggle with that question. We all want to be great, don't we? Right? We all just want, we want somebody to acknowledge us, missing out that God has acknowledged you by putting His image in you. And He has acknowledged you deeply because He sent His Son to die for you and applied that to you. What greater recognition could you have? than to be known as a son or daughter of the God Most High, which Paul argues, if you remember, because he says, this is, why, this is why I am a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus. And remember, we skip down and recognize the foundation of all that was the faithfulness of God to save us in the first place, and that He had predetermined to do that, which actually blows our minds. I get it, but that just means that it's nothing to do with what you do. Right? It's not about what you do. So trying to be great is actually antithetical to why you were saved. Take heart, beloved. Strain not under the weight of trying to have fickle man bestow his care upon you. Because it'll change. It'll change if he eats bad Chinese food. It'll change if he falls and hits his head and has a traumatic brain injury. It'll change if, if anything that you do runs counter to what he or she wants. It'll change. So don't fight for that which is essentially trying to grip water. Instead, stand firm upon the rock that has been placed so specifically for you, the sons and daughters of the Most High God. And remember what Paul wants you to do is grow in your faith and your knowledge, which are kind of inward realities, and that those inward realities would have outward manifestation in godliness. Which, we admitted, is a tough word, isn't it? It's a heavy word. It feels, as soon as I say it, I feel it, and I know you do too. You're thinking, oh man, what's he about to tell us we got to do? Cameron's always telling us stuff we got to do. I just want to be told what's done. And you're right, it's both and in some respects. The do is not unto salvation. The do is because what, what has been done in Christ, right? And so what we are to do is represent that image. Remember, to be godly is to care about the things of God, to care about redemption, right? To love His children, to love uh, His people, to want for the nations, not just us, not just people who look like us, to be saved, to have a true missionary heart. That is godliness and to live that out. And remember, the church has one job in light of that. What is it? Make disciples. Make disciples, right? And I know you hear something heavy when I say that because automatically you're thinking, oh man, I got to gather a group together. I got to learn how to teach. I got I to gotta, I gotta do all this stuff. No, 
Making of disciples is the church as a whole's business. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. We don't all have the same job. Not all of you are going to teach. You're just not. But all of you are going to bear witness in everything you do and say. And so what you want to do is bear witness in that way. Some of you will disciple by just praying for people. What a beautiful thing if you have that gift of prayer and encouragement. We need that. We need to put that on display. We are so weak in that. We, we oftentimes don't, don't take time for that. I was telling uh, the folks we ate dinner with last night that one of the things I long to look out someday and see is when the service ends. Because here's the reality. There's not one single one of you in here right now who doesn't need somebody to pray for them. It's just true. But... So few of us, myself included, ask. And so few of us recognize and do it anyway. Right? I'd love when the service ended for me to look out and see so many of you gathering and grabbing hold of one another to pray for one another. Because you know that is what is needed that's how you become true family in the church of God. And I know that makes some of you uncomfortable because you're like, I don't want nobody grabbing me. Because, you know, some people get all charismatic, want to get all up in your space and pray and you spit on you. And I get it. I get it. Maybe you should set some boundaries, let people know your needs. I don't know. But let's not limit what is needed, right? And let's be honest in our humility and in who we are, because that's what Paul's calling for us to be, because we are trying to do this in the midst of a fallen world, and it grows darker, it seems, all the time, although I think it's as dark as it's ever been since East of Eden. We're just doing the same stuff over and over and over again. And so Paul wants that foundation to be laid firm, and that's his purpose, and so now he turns to Titus to tell him what he has left him in Crete to do, and so I don't, I don't want you to not listen because you're like, oh, this is just a word for the elders, right? No, it, it's, it's a word for you too, actually. Because every Christian ought to display these things. Every Christian, right? This is actually, if you want to think about it, this is, this is Paul saying, choose men who are actually displaying the outworking of their faith and their knowledge in godliness. This is what he's given us a picture of. So this is a good thing for us to hear, all of us. Let me start with verses 5 and 6, and then we'll move on. But before we do that, let me ask you a couple of questions. Or a, well, yeah, it's really two questions. What impact does the character of the leaders of the church have on the life of the church? <laughs> Major, right? If something goes down in the leadership, what does it consume? All of the energy and the life of the church, right? You have a major thing happen to the lead guy, or even one of the elders, and it's, it's, let's just say it's salacious, if you know what that means. And, uh, and so, so it's a bad deal, let's just say that. And it's public. It chews up everything. And then what does it do to the ministry of the church in that community? Destroys it. It absolutely destroys it. We have too many examples at current to pick from, and I'm not going to waste your time. You've heard them. But that is why it is so incredibly important that the character of those who are in leadership is exemplary. Now, is the character of the men who are to be in leadership to be perfect? Well, you'd have to explain to me, Peter. 
<laughs> and James and John, who, remember those guys were like, hey, let's call down fire from heaven and blow up this town because they don't, they don't agree with us. Just, let's just wipe them off the face of the earth. And then, you remember, they were always struggling. They're the ones who asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, you got the question wrong, guys. You might not even be in the kingdom. And so we, we can't suggest that people ought to be perfect, but what they ought to be is Psalm 51 repentant when they do get sideways. Because we're going to read some things about family that's going to make some of you think, Cameron, I think you ought to step down from the stage and, and, and go back to physical therapy. Because I've heard some stuff about your kids. I've heard some about yours too. And so, so what, what do we do with some of this stuff? All right, so let's, let's start. Um, recognizing, and before we do, I want to read from Philippians 2, because I think this is such a great passage um, to orient, because this is to us all, right? And this, this will help kind of keep our hearts oriented. Um, listen to what, what Paul says in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let me pause right there for just a second. Sometimes I think we spend more of our time trying to make sure that people understand how we're actually different. Either how you're different from me or how you disagree with me or how you disagree with each other or how you disagree with the PCA or how you disagree with all... We, we spend too much of our time chewed up with that sort of chatter and distraction. We just do. I've been guilty of it and you've been guilty of it here and there. It, it just So one of the things we want to do straight away is begin to kind of step back and go, hey, where are we of the same mind? And how can we stand firm upon that? And instead of stressing our differences, remember our church membership vows, are, are, they're, they're not, they don't require tons and tons and tons of agreement on Sabbath or infant baptism or, or covenant theology even. You can disagree, and some of you have been made your voice known about different things. I get it, but that's not why we're, we're not here for that. And those things aren't even the emphasis anyway. The emphasis is discipleship so that the Lord be glorified. Let us stand firm in that, right? And so, so that's what Paul's calling for us to do. And now he's going to give us what that same mind ought to be around. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't worry about who the greatest is. It's a bad question. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord to the glory of God our Father. That's godliness. Show humility, be of the same mind, work toward the same mission. Stop stressing the, the minuscule, ultimately minuscule differences. Instead, let us join together and let this be our church for the glory of God. Instead of my church or your church, but our church, really 
Christ's church is really what we ought to say, right? And let's be unified in what we're doing. Now, for some of you, you may be wondering, is something going on? Because you always do. If I bring anything up, you're always wondering, kind of, if he's saying that much, how much more is going on? No, there's not. I'd rather be proactive than reactive. Now, there might be some little minuscule kind of peccadillo things kind of going on here and there, but I'm not worried about those things. I want us to keep in front of us what matters most, always, always. And so, no, there's no major issue going on. I'm not coming apart at the seams, and I don't think you are either, to my awareness. And so, don't worry about that, and let's focus back in on God's Word. Let's hear verses 5 and 6 from Titus 1. That is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let me pause there for just a moment and let's talk about what Paul's doing here. So he's saying, Titus, I left you in Crete. And remember, Crete was a really nice resort town where everybody was sweet, right? No, it was basically just a giant lava rock. I mean, it was an export town. There was a lot of things going on there, a lot of things coming through there. But remember how they talked about the Cretans. For, for me to call you a Cretan is not a compliment, nor if you called me one. And so we recognize that that comes from somewhere. This was, rough, this was a rough patch of dirt with a broken group of people. And Titus was left there to do the good work of continuing God's love even to the Cretans that had been predetermined from before the foundation of the world so that their bad deeds could not take away his love for them. Amen? That's good news to us, right? The imperfect. Now, he says, I left you there to continue the work that was began. We really don't know how much work had begun because it's not talked about much in Acts. In the book of Acts, the only time we hear of Crete, Paul makes just like a brief stopover there. Not long, so it's not really within the pale of Scripture to give us much information, but enough work had gone on to necessitate elders, which indicates the birth, that there was a church being born on the island of Crete, or churches, rather, in every town. And so he's saying, you've got to find some elders. Now think about this for a second. If Cretans are as bad as what we're going to hear next week, how big do you think the pool is? Probably going to be tough sledding to find people who fit some of these things. But notice where Paul starts. He says they need to be above reproach, which is an indication that they are known publicly, that, that their lives are, are bear witness publicly, and he begins with the family. And he says that they must be the husband of one wife. Um, and so there's a lot of debate about what these things mean, and we try to press this text to say so much more than it really does. We really do. Instead of recognizing more than anything, what Paul is saying is that this man shows a faithful to his wife, faithfulness to his wife that he will also show to the bride of Christ. You get that? It's a faithfulness to his wife that will be reflected, that will, that will be in and of the work that he does, a faithfulness to the bride of Christ, the church, because, let me ask you, is it easy to manage people for any reason, right? Is it easy to manage people when you don't pay them? 
Is it easy to manage a group of people who all have different expectations, different family situations, different life situations, different opinions about every five seconds of the service? Differences abound. How easy is it to love and, and oversee and steward people under those conditions? This is why not many of you should become elders. Because it is, it is difficult, and the weight is significant, and that's why there's double judgment for those who do. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm hoping it's less than what I think it is, but it's probably more. And so he says, they've got to show a faithfulness to their wife. Now, many people want to try to say, well, what it means is it's all about polygamy. Well, actually, polygamy wasn't that big a deal on the Isle of Crete. So it probably wasn't that. It may have included that as well. And some people try to say it's it's, it's this guy who's never been divorced. Maybe, but again, divorce wasn't the issue then as it is now. It wasn't 1965, 1970 America where 50% of of everything ends in divorce. Now we're up to about 60%, and now people just aren't even getting married. They're skipping that whole legalistic thing altogether. And so... so probably was not so much about that. And you have an instance in the Old Testament where God says very clearly, I'm issuing Israel a certificate of divorce. Uh, There's a lot in that. And so I don't want to just throw that out there casually and say divorce doesn't matter. No, God hates divorce. Don't get me wrong. Don't get this twisted. But Paul's great concern here is he knows the job is going to be hard in Crete. And he is saying, make sure these guys have shown a faithfulness and an affection for their own wife because trying to please one is nothing like trying to please 150. Then he goes on to talk about children. Here's where it really gets hairy. He says they need to be believers. It needs to be obvious that they have some sort of belief and they cannot be charged with debauchery or insubordination. And those of you who know my daughter think straight away, you're gone, bro. Well, that's not necessarily true. Because if what we're saying, because that's to suggest perfection. Is that what he's talking about here? No, what he's saying is, is that this man should have shown an evidence, evidence of of fruit in the mission field that the Lord has given him primarily. Is that true for every one of you as parents, actually? That before you move on to anything else, you ought to have more concern for the mission field you've been granted before you try to lead in other places. Because again, it's distracting, isn't it? For those of you who do any ministry at all, you constantly feel the tension you're cheating on somebody because of the weight of these things. And so what what Paul is saying is there should be evidence that there's fruit in that field. So, So my daughter will tell you, despite all of her things, she's never not believed in God. My son will as well. And part of it is how you manage, Brian Chappell talks about this um, in his, his commentary on the book of Titus. He says, look, the, the issue here, actually you want to see how a man manages sin. You want to you see how he deals with when their children go prodigal because guess what's going to happen in the church? You're going... Yeah, you're going prodigal at some point. We're going to get sideways at some point, right? And so, so how, you want to see some evidence of how that man has loved his family because the church is family. 
and that'll give you the best indication of who he is. Now, is this saying that a man has to have been married and he has to have had children? No, I don't, I don't, and I agree with some other commentators, Brian Chappell being one. That's not necessarily what this passage is saying, but when a man does have a family, it does give you a better indication of what you're getting and kind of what he's going to get himself into. But make no mistake, it's not that you can't be an elder if you don't have children. It's not even that you can't be an elder if you're not married. It's just we've got less to work with to figure out how you're going to do. But notice that's where he starts. Before you can become an elder in the local church, there needs to be an exemplariness in how you deal with your family. Now, in order for that to happen, can I just see you on Sunday? No. Because you guys dress up well on Sundays. You hide stuff pretty doggone well, you think. You think. And so it's important that we be involved in one another's lives enough to be able to know and see how these things are playing out. One of the greatest gifts I was ever given was an elder named Tim Harden one time sitting in my house, had the nerve sitting on my couch after having eaten my wife's great food to say to me, you talk way too sharply to your son. Most loving thing anybody's ever done for me. Have the courage to say that. And love me enough to show that, hey, I'm not saying that because I'm mad at you. I'm saying that because I know what the Lord is calling you to. And you, you've got to, that's got to be dealt with first before you can move forward. So Tim was loving me well in that regard. Right? And we, too, for you. You know, we'll, we'll have periodically nominations. We'll probably do deacons next in January and then elders again in the following January. And, and sometimes we're going to put people up that we think, hey, from the outside, from what I see on Sunday, from what little bit I noticed, they're, they're, they're legit. They should be an elder. And you've got to trust us to be involved enough in their lives if they're not really qualified to say that and, and protect that person by not having to put all of their weaknesses on blast. And so that's, it's, this is important and should not be glossed over. And so Paul's saying family comes first. Listen to what John Calvin says. He says, seeing that it is required that an elder shall have prudence and gravity, it is proper that those qualities should be exhibited in his family. For how shall that man who cannot rule his own house be able to govern the church? Now, is your family the primary focus of your faithfulness and disciple-making? Regardless of whether or not you can be an elder, that's, that's not what the important part is. This is just a true principle for all of us. Is that the place, or do you find that work a little bit tedious, and you want some better recognition from some people who aren't 7 and 8 and 10 and 12 and 3 and 4 who are terrible at actually building our egos? Wait, that may be a grace of God. Right? I've always argued that the greatest theological education you could ever receive is have children because they will strain and teach in ways that you never, ever expected if the Lord is willing to grant such. And so, so are you focused there first? For those of you who maybe you're just, just starting getting married, are you focused on being faithful to your wife 
and building her up and loving her as Christ loved the church according to Ephesians 5 and according to Peter. Are your prayers being hindered because you don't seek to understand her because you buy in to the cultural narrative that just says, you know, you can't ever understand them. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus or something like that. Right? No, you are to try to understand and love and lift up and do what Christ did for his bride. And let that be a witness. For those of you who are not yet married, you need to be thinking about this now because it does not come easy, married folks, does it? To go and try to lift up another sinner and love them as Christ loved the church and wash them with the water of the word sometimes feels Herculean. For those of you who have families and you try to plan family worship time and you have these visions of utopiatic bliss and you open the Bible and like demons swirl around the room and, and there's green pea soup flying off the walls and you're wondering, hey, this ain't what I planned. It's not easy. Especially not easy when, when it is outside of that. So, I want you to hear from me more than anything is that I am unconcerned with building leadership in the church before it is built in the family and evidence so in the family that you are above reproach, that people know you are a good husband and a good father and a good man who loves his family first. And same for you as women, that you're a good mother, that you're a good wife, and that you love your family first before you try to love the church. All right, let's go back to the text, verses 7 through 9. Now he's going to say, now if a guy can make it through that gauntlet, right, then he's an elder, and this is what he should look like. He says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul now shifts to the, the vices and the virtues of the man who loves his family well, who is able to be a, an elder at this juncture. And notice what he says straight away. What, what, what kind of images come to your mind when you hear the word overseer or steward? Well, what should come to your mind is that this man is taking charge of something that is not his. This man is being given a handful of talents, as it were, to invest in and to invest that are not his. And he is actually being given the keys to the house and he's being told, take care of of the family in the house. We get that twisted sometimes as elders. We, we think we're something other than. We think it's our responsibility. That's why it's important for us to continue to battle the language. And if you hear me say, my church versus our church, challenge me. Push against any of the things that you see where I, it's my kingdom. And I'm not being an overseer or a steward. I'm doing things that are patently unbiblical. You better have your stuff together when you do it, but, but do it, right? Don't come casual. And don't expect me just to take it and smile and not pick the Bible up and go, okay, let's see. But let us make sure that we recognize this, this is not the thing I'm creating in my image. Or you to try to twist it into your image, but instead to be the house of God, the family of God for the glory of God. 
So those are important words for us. And then it goes on to talk about the vices, that this man must be, again, he uses above reproach. Again, this must be evident. People must be able to see this. Because it's not only for the life of the church, but it's for the life of the world. He cannot be arrogant. Now, does this mean you don't ever struggle with pride? I can't be, because we all do at some point or another. The question is whether or not we're repentant of it. Arrogant being more of a quality that is, that is more definitive of us. We should never have an elder who is, who is um, arrogant or a, a pastor who ultimately is arrogant. But that's not according to your definition, by the way, but that's according to the biblical definition. Because remember, pride is the antithesis to faith. And so, so we got to know this man well enough to know, is he, what are the evidences of non-arrogance? Is he repentant? When he does, is he, when he's confronted with the truth of the Word, does he respond to the truth of the Word? But again, you've got to be enough in a guy's life to see where that happens. He goes on to say he can't be, he can't be quick-tempered. How many elders and pastors have you known, unfortunately, to be both arrogant and quick-tempered? And when confronted with that, they become all the more so on both fronts. That, that, is, that is obnoxious and noxious to the calling of the church. And would that you would love me well enough to say it when you see it in me. But again, you better be biblical. And you better, better have it together. It can't be casual. We've got to love each other better than that. And it goes on to say that he... Um, he can't be a drunkard or violent or greedy. This just seems obvious to me. Violent, drunk people probably shouldn't be elders. Um, yeah, and sometimes that comes out, doesn't it? Sometimes that comes later. They've got to step down and get it together. Greedy. Wow, that one. That one if we trusted more. Because oftentimes we'll put people in place as an elder who's a good businessman. He may be a good businessman because he's greedy. He's not going to manage the church's resources well because the church is called to be generous. If what we do is put our money in storehouses and little coffers and hide it for a future time, God says very firmly to us, fools, give it away because i got more, more than you can imagine. Do not bury your talent. So we've got to be generous in this regard. And he goes on to say, hospitable. I want to spend a, just a moment of time on this one because I brought this up last week. Notice how God shows this beautiful hospitality. We heard it in Psalm 26, didn't we? Because that person, that psalmist is writing and saying, I love being in the assembly of the Lord because of God's hospitality, because of how He welcomes us in in redemption. We too ought to be hospitable. But see, we've got a, we've got a hang-up, don't we, in our culture? When I say hospitality, what do you immediately think of? Southern hospitality. And if the baseboards aren't spotless, the offense is going to keep people from Jesus. And if Pinterest has any say in it, if you don't have these beautifully writ placards at every place when someone comes in so they know exactly where they're supposed to sit, the confusion will lead them out beyond the reach of the Trinity. Now, now listen... My wife isn't in here, and she's, she is wonderfully hospitable. One of her great, great gifts. And people will endure my pugnaciousness 
for any length of time as long as the food keeps coming, <laughs> and it often does. And so, so don't hear me say your hospitality doesn't, shouldn't be creative because God is creative, but what I'm telling you is you're, it shouldn't be limited by dust and your inability to take enough time to make it amazing. This isn't a competition. It's not about who's the greatest. What it's about is who is welcoming. And like a child welcoming us in, we had friends in Macon. They adopted three and had two. Five kids, all under, at one point, the age of six. Right? All of you are like, ooh. If you were going by their house, you were going to help fold laundry because there was going to be this giant pile in the chair and there was going to be nowhere for you to sit. Right? And they loved it. They please come in and help. And it, ne- it never limited their hospitality. They were always so beautifully hospitable in the midst of what was an utter whirlwind. And as soon as you sat down, at least three of the kids pounced on you in varying stages of cleanliness, which, if you know me, I'm kind of funny about snot and other products. And so, but they were just, and again, it was part of my sanctification. I mean, they were just loving on me, and I just had to, I had to get a tetanus shot and be fine with it. And so, uh, so but, but what, a, what a beautiful picture it was to me that these folks, their home was always open. And I'm not saying we're all like that. I know we've got some introverts and we've got some extroverts. And I know we live in different places. Like if we all wanted to just drop by the napper's house, that takes some effort and probably should let them know you're coming. <laughs> so uh, otherwise, you may be like helping birth a calf or something like that, which would be awesome. Um, but, but, but would that we would loosen up. You know, there's some things that, and I loved it. Uh, um, Philip and I were talking, uh, and he made this great statement a few weeks ago. He said, people just need to stop taking themselves so seriously. We do. And I want to add to that, there's a lot of stuff we need to stop taking so seriously and a lot of stuff we need to start taking seriously. Like, we've, I think we've got it flipped. And one of the things we need to stop taking so seriously is the necessity for everything to be perfect in order to welcome people into our space. Because it's never going to be perfect. Never. And, we'll, and again, remember, the church all has gifts. Your hospitality from one home to the next will look different. Do not feel the pressure of me saying you must open up a youth hostel. That's not what I'm saying. And you're going to do it in your own way, in your own giftedness, and it'll be beautiful, but do it. Somehow, some way, do it. So hospitality is a very important aspect of who we are as elders because if, if, if we don't welcome people in, we're not being godly. And then it goes on to say, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on those things. I think they should be relatively obvious of what those things mean. But in sum, what, what those things essentially mean is that this person shows a, a, an ongoing sanctification process that is intentional and is, and is helping them to grow. One of the things I keep saying to the staff, and as new people come in, as, um, as we have opportunity to have interns, is, listen, the goal for this is that when it's said and done, you love Jesus more now than when you started. Everything else doesn't matter. I have no other goal for you. I know some of you are like, well, then we may have no small groups because for Robbie to love Jesus means he has to have less conflict. Um, No, but through conflict, Robbie will learn how to love Jesus better. And so that's the goal for all of us, and the same for you too, that the day that you leave this church, whether it's because Jesus shows up in the east, or because, or because you can't flourish and worship here anymore, or because God moves you somewhere, or you have some sort of mission that calls you elsewhere, I want you to walk away having loved Jesus more than when you came in here, if at all possible. 
It's not all on me, by the way. And so that's a part of it, is that you, we should be able to ask anyone who's an elder, you, they, you ought to be able to ask, hey, what's God doing in your life? And they should be able to answer. That's really what this says. And if I can't, if I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know. That's bad news for you, isn't it? If I can't give you where my joy and my salvation is growing in some way, shape, or form, it may be in the crucible, or it may be in great joy, but if I can't articulate to you what God is doing, something is off. And the same ought to be true for us with one another. He goes on to say, this person must also hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Remember what Paul said, that he was sent to teach, preach, and that the Lord would be the one who would give um, insight into that. It was not based on his teaching and preaching, but it was based on the Lord's moving to make that happen. And so what he's saying is that they're clinging to what we read from last week. And it was actually kind of providential that Josh read it this week. We're clinging to what matters most, which is the story of Christ. Remember, Paul said, I purpose to know nothing among you except Christ crucified, which is a lot, by the way. It's more than it sounds like because it is Genesis to Revelation after all. And so, so we ought to purpose to know that and that more than anything else, the story of Christ and how it fits together. And this person ought to be able to teach that, that sound doctrine, and be able to rebuke those who come in. And that's the part we probably like the least. Because some of you will sometimes come and say, hey, I'm reading this book. I don't know if you heard of the guy. He's awesome. His name Deepak Chopra. Uh, and uh, i got to rebuke that. Right? i got to be able to, and you need to be able to be okay with, and you may be reading it so you can minister to somebody. You may have a better reason than what's on the surface, but if you're reading it to try to inform your spiritual being, that's got to be rebuked. Or if you come in and you say, hey, uh, I found this really cool group on Facebook called the Concerned Presbyterians. Please don't look these people up. Uh, and I really think, I, I want to be a Concerned Presbyterian, and no, you don't. Uh, because we'll have to rebuke that because that's, it's racism. It's xenophobia and it's, and it's a nationalism that is actually antithetical to the gospel. And that needs to be pushed against, not encouraged. So we've got to have men who are willing to push against when the wolves creep in in sheep's clothing. So that's not easy work, is it? But it's better work for us the more you know about the Scriptures, Right? Because that means we're doing this all together and it's not just incumbent upon us to be the only ones who know. No, you too ought to grow in these things as well. You ought to be able to rebuke it before it ever gets to us. Right? You ought to be discerning and able to say, I don't think this fits. And protect your family from it as well. All right. So, listen to what John R.W. Stott says about this last portion. He says, candidates for the pastorate or elderate must give visible evidence in their behavior that they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that their new birth has led to a new life, that their fallen passions are under control, and that the ninefold fruit of the Spirit has at least begun to appear and to ripen in their lives. So what is the ultimate purpose of all these outward evidences of the, the inward faith and knowledge? Purpose is discipleship. All of this is for discipleship, to build. And I know you guys are like, Cameron's seeing discipleship everywhere now. He's gotten on this hobby horse. He's like John Piper in hedonism all of a sudden. But no, discipleship is the, 
Uh, yes, I'm blind beyond it. But, but uh, it is the thing. And I want us to be disciple makers. I want us to be people who are able to build in and build others up in the glory of Christ. Each of us having a different part in that. So what do we learn from Titus 1, 5 through 9? There's two things. A man must first be faithful to his wife and bear missional fruit in his children to even be considered as an elder over the family of God. Two, an elder must have exemplary character in terms of his vices and his virtues so as to promote the faith in the church and in the world. R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel say this, what the church needs is leaders whose words and deeds indicate that it is possible to live above the common constraints of the world while at the same time being willing to make the common confession that they are as dependent on grace as any other person. So that's what we ought to be. We're not managers of an institution. What we are is hopefully exemplars of the ongoing work of the gospel and the necessity for grace. And that we give you hope. We give you some form of hope by virtue of our lives that you too can grow in spirit and truth to live in word and deed. Amen?